You know, when we come to Christmas each and every year, we often get, of course, as we've stated many times in the last month, we get distracted with all the commercialism that's wrapped around what we see as Christmas today. And you know, over the last month, I've heard in many conversations, people really consumed about what they're going to get for Christmas. Will it be something that I really want? Will it be something that I maybe need? Or is it going to be something that's going to end up being regifted anyway? Now, I, I get very scared of regifting personally. You know why? I'm scared that I'm going to regift it back to the same person that gave it to me and then have to explain or regift it to someone in the presence of the person who gave it to me. Oh, I put so much thought in this gift for you, and I give it to them, and the person next to me is like, isn't that what I gave you? Isn't that what I gave you? You know, when I was a little boy, my mom and dad always, when we started working our way up to Christmas, it was usually in September. My mom would get this book in the mail. It was about this thick, about this wide, It would be on the kitchen table, and we always know when it would arrive, and then she would say, I want you two to go through this book and tell me what you want for Christmas. That book was the Amazon of our day. It was called the Sears Catalog. And, you know, um, we would look through the Sears Catalog all the time, and, you know, my sister's not here today, so she's fair game. Um... My sister would take it into the bathroom with her. Two hours later, you know, she'd come out. It's like, what were you doing? I don't want to know what you were doing. I have no, no desire to know what you were doing. But then we would write this list of things that we wanted. Now, just because we wrote it on the list, we were certainly not guaranteed to get it. So it would be kind of hit or miss. Like, which ones would mom and dad focus in on? And as we got older, we started getting a little bit wiser. Like, for example, you don't put the most expensive one at the top because they're automatically going to dismiss that one, kind of mix it in the middle somewhere. You know, and then some of the ones you really don't want, you know, you kind of, you, you kind of, uh, weave those in and so forth. And, you know, it started to become this thing, but it was always a guessing game until Christmas morning to discover what we actually would get. It reminds me of a a, a little boy that I heard of who was so concerned about what he was going to get for Christmas, he wanted to um, shore up the possibility by writing God a letter pleading his case before God. But he heard about this whole naughty and nice list and was really concerned because that year had not been a banner year for this kid. So he wrote God and he says, listen, God, for the last six months, I've been a good kid. But thinking about it and knowing who God was and knowing that God knew everything, he decided to rewrite it and say, God, listen, for the last three months, I have been a really, really good kid. But his conscience got the best of him once again. And so he then decided to say, Lord, for the last two weeks, I have been a good kid. But realizing that that really wasn't as impressive as it should be, he then looked over to the nativity, went over there, grabbed one of the statutes, and then finished writing his letter. 
It says, I've been good for the last two weeks, but if that's not sufficient, know that I have your mother hostage and I won't give her back until you give me what I want. Sounds like a letter that I would have written. That being said, I think about this over the years, and when I was a kid, I was so certain of what I wanted for Christmas. And now my wife asks me, and she'll say, what do you want for Christmas? And I'll really have sometimes a difficult time answering her, not because I have everything. I certainly don't. It's, it's not because I'm hard to please. It's just that when my wife is asking me such a question, she's asking me, what do I want for Chris, uh, Christmas? I think about, well, I want something that matters more than just at that moment. I want something that I can use for the entire year. I remember one year that I put up on Instagram the items that I bought my wife. It was a mop, it was a bucket, it was a squeegee, it was this. And I, the hate that I got from the community, asking, you know, telling me, don't you realize you married up to begin with? You, you know, you're jeopardizing it. But I thought, I, well, this is what she needs. Uh, you know, and it, this is what's going to benefit us for the entire year. I was perfectly satisfied with it. She wasn't nearly as thrilled with it, you know. Um, but when she asks me, it's like, you know, I, I just want it, to ma- I want it to be something that I really need, that I can use. And we were all there as kids, right? You had the two piles of presents. You had the presents that you wanted and then the presents that you needed, you know, and you always knew the transition point when you go from the toy that you've always wanted to the box of socks and underwear. You know, it was downhill from there. But as I get older, and I think about what really matters in life, the selection of a gift or the purchase of a gift matters even more and I want to be specific and I want it to mean something more than just that initial moment of excitement when I open the gift, see it, and then don't touch it again for maybe the entirety of the year. I think God looked at us and said, you know, I know there are all these things that you want, but I'm going to provide what you need. And it's going to be the greatest gift that you could ever possibly receive. You may not see it at first, and he understood that. And he said, you may not appreciate it at first. And he understood that. But as time went on, as things came about, and as situations became clearer, we discovered that God is always perfect in providing the gifts in which we need. And on this Christmas time of the year, we remember the first coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I'd like to bring you to Luke chapter 2, if I may. As we've been reading up until this particular portion of Scripture, we now find ourselves moments from the birth of Jesus Christ. So if I may, let me take you back 2,000 years in history to a moment in time where in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
Luke is framing everything that he is writing in a historical context because from the very beginning of his letter to us, he wants us to have certainty in the events that have taken place. And by giving us this context, he is telling us that at this historical moment in time, this is what's taking place, that Caesar Augustus has now come to power, the first Caesar in a line of many Caesars, since Rome has now gone from a republic to an empire that was brought about by the hand of Caesar Augustus, who is better known as Gaius Octavian, who brought about a cohesive empire for the Roman culture. And as a result, he is now sitting as Caesar. Caesar was not his name. It was a title in which was given to him. It was the title that was going to declare to all that he has now risen to a place of prominent power within that society. Following, of course, Julius Caesar. And therefore, now he has become the first Caesar of the Roman Empire. He is overseeing all of this and takes a second name, the name Augustus, to show that not only does he believe that he has now reached the pinnacle of political power, but he has now also come to a place of the position of deity before all. That he was a god unto this world. That he himself saw himself as a deity. And what he prided himself upon was what was called the Pax Romanera, which means the peace that Rome now enjoyed due to his succession and due to the presence of the Roman Empire. If you are familiar with a uh, Hollywood blockbuster named Star Wars you'll understand that one of the episodes talks about the republic moving from a republic to an empire. And this is paralleled from the, uh, the rise of the Roman Empire, where the evil of an individual's heart truly encapsulated itself, himself in one particular position to bring about an empire, to bring about a peace, not a peace that was enjoyed by everyone within the empire, but a peace that was enjoyed by Rome itself by controlling the subjects of the empire in a certain way through brutality and through uh, quick oppression and subjection, the Roman Empire, the Rome, the city itself, enjoyed peace. This was what John F. Kennedy spoke about when he talked about a peace that he did not want to see in the world, which he called a Pax Americana, which means that it was a peace due to the fact of the superiority of an American empire within the world, and therefore we enjoyed peace, but everyone else would be in a position of suffering. But you can see how this particular introduction to our text parallels that with the coming of Jesus Christ. Here, this Caesar believed that he now was an instrument and God himself to bring about a peace in the world that truly only Rome was enjoying. And as a result, he wanted, therefore, to truly number all of his subjects within the empire for the purpose of taxation. So he therefore stated that all in the Roman Empire must be registered, including those who are found there in Israel, 
since Israel was now under the, the oppression of Rome itself. And this was the first registration when um, Cunerus was governor of Syria. And all went in to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David. This registration that Caesar Augustus puts forward is now being implemented by the governors that reign over the different sections of the Roman Empire. And as a result, even Joseph and Mary, who find themselves in Nazareth, she is late in her pregnancy, she is still very young in age, she is at a time of betrothal, meaning that the marriage has not gone to full consummation yet. They have not been intimate together. And in this particular moment in time in her life, she is now being requested by the, or I should say ordered by the Roman government to be moved 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And it was going to be there in Bethlehem that, of course, the Savior would come forth. These taxations were a common occurrence in all of Rome. When Caesar Augustus first came into power, he divided Israel in four different kingdoms. And as a result, each of the four kingdoms of Israel uh, were required to raise taxes on top of the taxes that Rome required because, again, if these nations were going to be benefited by the Roman protection of the Roman legions, they had to pay for that. If they were going to enjoy the uh, citizenship of that particular region, they would have to pay taxes onto the Herods, the four Herods, which were placed in position by Caesar Augustus. And as a result, it became very, very clear to the average person that the overtaxation of the people was going to cause great unrest amongst the people. So what they would do is displace the people. By requiring this censorship, they had this incredible upheaval of huge population shifts across the nation. And you would think, well, I would think that that would uh, give rise to greater um, resistance and rebellion. But what actually happened is that they were so consumed with moving to the areas that they were required to move for, they could not um, gather in one area to become a cohesive force against the Roman Empire. So you just had small pockets of resistance through insurgencies and etc. that Rome was able to quickly, quickly suppress. So as Mary and Joseph are now making their way this 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and because he was of the lineage of David, that is Joseph, he was required, verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
It is interesting to me that Caesar Augustus is mentioned from the very beginning of Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. It is Luke's desire that we parallel the greatest political authority at that time with the incredible sovereignty and ultimate authority of God. Here, Caesar Augustus believed that he was bringing about a a peace that would would, uh, benefit Rome specifically, that he was the answer to the problems of that day, that he was going to create a utopia through the empire that has been established. And yet, we find the perfect plans of God being absolutely Uh, instructed and implemented in and through the decrees of Caesar Augustus himself. Due to this registration, due to this edict that would cause Mary and Joseph to move from Nazareth to Bethlehem, a prophecy given 700 years earlier would be fulfilled. For the prophet Micah wrote when he stated But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. I see the incredible sovereignty of God working through the free will of man, perfectly fulfilling all that God would have to be fulfilled, bringing them to Bethlehem for this child to be born, to identify him with the lineage of David, to allow him to be introduced in the humility in which he was to be introduced, and to allow the certain demographic of the time and culture to be the first to come and adore and to worship him, all set in motion by God himself. It is amazing to me the object humility that is found in this account. As they arrived there in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was nothing to write home about. It was one of those areas that was very small in nature. There was no real wealth there. Though King David himself was a shepherd there and grew up there, Afterwards, in the, by the time of Jesus Christ, Bethlehem had become a worn-down area. It had been trampled on several times as the Roman Empire would continue to send legions of troops in and out of Jerusalem. It became kind of an area that no one really wanted to inhabit. And therefore, they were not prepared for the uh, surge of population due to this census or this registration being uh, called for. And therefore, when they got there, undoubtedly 80 miles, a woman nine in her last trimester at best, and trying to make her way there. She undoubtedly got there when they got there, and as a result, things were full. Now let us understand, I mean, they just didn't pull up, and then there was a Howard Johnson right there in the corner, or a Holiday Inn, you know. An inn at that time was a spare room that a occupant or an individual in that town would have. Or it would be a lower level that would be shared with storage and so forth that could also be used to house individuals. So when they come to this particular place and time, everything is full. 
There is nowhere for them to go except a cave, which undoubtedly, and I believe it was a cave due to the uh, geological area that Bethlehem is surrounded by, that this is where the stalls were uh, carved out. This is where they were, the animals were kept and so forth. And as a result, this was all that was left to them. And this is where the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, was birthed, heralded by a star that proclaimed his entrance into this world from heaven. It's incredible to me to know that the ultimate individual of royalty traveled so lightly. When Queen Elizabeth was last here, she traveled with over 5,000 pounds of clothing. She not only had 5,000 pounds of clothing, she had her own personal hairdresser, two personal valets, and she had special leather covers for the toilet seats that she would have to utilize while she is here. I guess that's the secret to a long life, toilet covers. But this is what the Queen of England came just to the United States with, okay? I don't know, I mean, did she think we, were, we don't have hot and cold running water in our homes yet or what? But this is what she came to and yet we find the Lord and Savior comes in the mists of nothing to show his humility, to show his vulnerability as Savior, to show that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but he himself has humbled himself to the point to be birthed in such a way. One wrote, he said this, and I love this quote. He said, The hands that made the sun and stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle that surrounded him, too small to change his own clothing or to put food in his own mouth. Amazing that God is found as an infant in the state of helplessness. What an incredible picture to imagine. He was wrapped in swaddling clothing, which becomes the point of attention in the announcement that the angels make to the shepherds in just a moment. These swaddling clothing is unique to that culture. It wasn't that he was just merely wrapped in a blanket and therefore put in a manger just to keep warm. These swaddling clothing were taken of scraps that were found there in the cave, strips of material that he was wrapped in in a certain manner. Some believe that the Jewish culture did this to help strengthen the arms and legs of the infant who was born. That very well may be. But I think there was greater significance to the swaddling clothes in which he was found within. As the angel proclaims to the shepherd, for the sign that will be given to them is that they will find a child wrapped in swaddling clothes, and it is him that they should go and adore. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
when royalty was born in that culture, it was significant in whom was informed first. For an example, if royalty is birthed in England today, if one of the young princes and his bride have a child, the announcement of that child will first go to the dignitaries of England who are on this list, and then will go to the presidents of the allies of England to announce that royalty has been birthed. And to be on that list is something uh, very special. It's something that is, uh, that is coveted by many. It means that you're in a significant relationship with that uh, individual, with that family of royalty to be given an announcement of the birth of a child. It is interesting to me that when he is born, the angel, we don't know which angel, could very well be Gabriel. Gabriel seems to be set over all things concerning Messiah, proclaims not to the Uh, royalty of the time, not to Caesar Augustus, not to the Herods that are in place, not to the religious leaders that are installed, but to the shepherds who are out in the field at night watching over their flocks. The only thing lower than a shepherd in that culture was a leper. This was a demographic of that society that was not uh, sought after and was avoided because in contact with a shepherd could cause one to become defiled and unclean in the Jewish law. But it is them in whom the announcement is made by an angel himself. It is interesting that if you look at a map, and you consider the culture in that time, and you go back to understand how things worked back in that culture, we are six miles from Jerusalem. It is very plausible that the lambs in which were being watched over by these shepherds were none other than the Passover lambs that would be used in the sacrifice at Passover time there in Jerusalem. If that is the case, can you imagine the, the uh, theological significance of this, that the shepherds watching over the Passover lambs to keep them from spot nor blemish, to keep them perfect for the sacrifices that they will pr- provide for those who will offer them, the covering of, from their blood, and here amongst them all is the Savior of the world being born. Now, I think this is very probable due to the fact that on the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem was the same day that all the Passover lambs were brought into Jerusalem for the religious leaders of that day to inspect and to approve for sacrifice. Jesus rode in with all of those people carrying those sacrificial lambs. So it is very probable to me that these are the lambs that he is surrounded by that will be used for the Passover sacrifice. Undoubtedly, when these shepherds were approached in the manner in which they were, they were filled with great fear. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was uh, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When we come to this sign that is given, the swaddling clothes are mentioned once again. Why does Luke give us this particular detail within his account? Remember, he is writing to Gentiles who do not have a background in Judaism. He's writing to you and I that aren't maybe familiar with all of the doings of the Jewish culture. There were two times in an individual's life that swaddling clothes would be used with, with, upon them within the course of their life. Once at the time of their birth and the second time at the time of their death. For them to find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, it is already prophetically pointing forward that this child has come for the purpose of dying. They would have recognized that. They would have seen that. They would have known that. That this child comes for a very unique purpose. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. But the purpose for Him coming is not only the 33 years of His life in which He demonstrates the perfect excellence of God the Father in every way, but also His death, which of course is invalidated by the resurrection. For those who are coming to see Him, they were looking for such a thing. Luke says the swaddling clothes was a message to them to show the purpose of the child and for the reason in which he was born. When the angel came, went away, I should say, verse 15, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, the baby lying in a manger, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it has been told to them. From the very beginning, the oversight of Israel was always paralleled with that of a shepherd. God said, you're going to have good shepherds that are going to look over you and you're going to protect you and they're going to love you and they're going to tend to you and they're going to feed you properly. He also warned Israel that at times they were going to have false shepherds, shepherds that were mere hirelings. They were just there for a moment and then they were gone. They were there when the money was sufficient, but then after that, they had no real stake in protecting the sheep and to dying on behalf of the sheep. A shepherd who was a true shepherd like David was, was willing to lay down his life for the life of the sheep. 
If you remember, David took on the wild animals that would come and try to harm and to kill and destroy the sheep in which he was overseeing. Jesus is now placing himself amongst those as our good shepherd. He is watching over us. He is loving us. He is feeding us. He's protecting us. He is showing us who he is and his love for us through that in which he does on our behalf. But as we determined that the message of the angel found in Luke 2, 10 and 11, the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. An angel appearing to Israelites was a very difficult situation because often the angel would come to proclaim judgment. In fact, Israel was waiting for such an occasion. The Old Testament said that angels would appear and that would proclaim judgment upon the nation of Israel. But this wasn't the judgment that they were anticipating. This was the provision of a Savior for them. For I bring you good news, not bad news, for good news and great joy that will be for all people. I have good news I have great, that will lead to great joy and it's for everybody to enjoy. Well, what is that news? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When the Jewish people thought of a Savior, they immediately thought of someone who was going to release them and lead them from the Roman oppression that they were currently under. Though the Bible was clear in the Old Testament that God was going to release them from their greatest bondage and defeat their greatest adversary. From the bondage of sin and from the adversary of death, Christ was going to release us from such things. This was the Savior in which He was going to become for us, to lead us from the bondages not of Rome, but from the bondages of sin, and not of Caesar, but of the bondages of death through that sin, the great enemy destroyed on our behalf. The reason more people today don't cry out to God for salvation is because many don't believe that they're in need of salvation. They believe that they're a good person before God and their goodness is going to guarantee them a place in heaven if heaven exists at all. However, though, the Bible clearly tells us the opposite. There are none who are good, no, not one. None of us have the capability of earning or meriting our own salvation from sin through the goodness and our personal righteousness that we have done through the course of our lifetime. God demands utter perfection from the time that we are born to the time we die. That perfection can never be obtained. That perfection can never be maintained. And each and every one of us lie guilty before God for the sin that is within us. And the reason sin is an issue is because we have been born with a sin nature. That nature plays itself out and therefore we sin due to the nature in which we have. It is that sin that we must be released from. It is that death that we must be saved from. And that's what Christ came to do on our behalf. But there's a hurdle that we need to get over. It's a huge hurdle. It's an enormous hurdle. And this hurdle is this, our personal pride. 
Pride has kept more people out of the kingdom of heaven than anything else that this world has ever known. Because we are too prideful to admit that we need a Savior. We're too prideful to admit that we cannot save ourselves. We're too prideful to state that we are in need of anything from a God who doesn't appear to be actively involved in one's personal life. And yet God is just the opposite. In everything that he does, he is screaming that not only am I active in your life, but I've provided for you the greatest need in which you have, and that is a need of a Savior. See, we can't look at ourselves objectively. We always want to believe that we're better than we actually are. And it's because we compare ourselves to one another rather than to God. Sure, I can do that too. I can compare myself to some of you. But you know what I'm saying. We don't want to take ownership for what's really happening in our lives. Why is that? Why do we resist this incredible offer in which God is making to us through the person of Jesus Christ? Turn with me into John's Gospel, chapter 3. And Jesus is going to explain why people don't want to receive what he is giving or offering to them. We begin in verse 16, one of the most notable and great verses of the Bible. As the religious individual Nicodemus has come to Jesus asking him how he may be saved, Jesus tells him that he needs to be born again. And to be born again is a work of the Spirit of God in the life of the individual. And it is the fulfillment of the purpose in which Christ came from the beginning. Notice with me in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We've read that verse. We've memorized that verse. We're reminded of that verse each and every time we attend a sporting event here in our nation. But we don't read on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Bottom line, there it is. People like doing what's wrong in the sight of God. It's fun. I don't want to be constrained by his moral standards that he places upon me. I want to live my life to the fullest. I want to enjoy every pleasure that this world has to offer. I want to be happy, and to do so, I must be able to experiment and and look at and involve myself in and to try for myself each and everything that the world has to offer to allow me that happiness. Trust me, it is a faulty pursuit. And the reason I know that is because one of the greatest individuals of the Bible went through that pursuit. He was the wisest of all men, He had everything that this world had to offer from huge monetary wealth, palaces and prestige. He had uh, all the amenities that you would want. His barns were full of cattle and horses and vets and Lamborghinis and so forth. He had it all. 
And at the end of his life, he says, you know what? This is ridiculous. It's all vanity. Everything I needed is in God. That's what I really need. Now you can go and pursue all of these things. You can try to live life to its fullest. And many are trying. And unfortunately, they're finding out for themselves that there's not much to be offered in this world. And this is what's leading to such great despair and depression and leads to suicide and so forth because there's an emptiness within them that cannot be filled with anything within this world and only God can fill it. But because they love the darkness rather than the light, they turn from Him. They run from Him. They reject Him. They want to do what they want to do. If someone takes that course of action, so be it. But don't you dare blame God for the consequences thereof. God did everything he could to keep you from these things. So you wouldn't be in that position. For in verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that they may be clearly seen that it is the works that have been carried out in God. This is why we reject it each and every Christmas, each and every day that the gospel is offered. And so many of us want to believe that there's something more. So many of us want to believe that there is a greater enlightenment or an education to be had by personal experience rather than learning by the experiences of those who have gone before us. I think that's ridiculous. If someone tells me that they put their hand in a fire and it burned themselves, I'm not going to be like, you know, okay, but that was you. This is me. My hand's a little different. You know, I don't think that you maybe put it in the wrong angle and it, mine, this time it's not going to burn as much, right? You know, the guy who led me to Jesus Christ, he went through the drugs, he went through the alcohol, he went through the lifestyle as a biker. And he told me all these things are empty, Eric. He goes, don't even bother with them. And I had already seen it for myself in how alcohol devastated my personal family. I didn't need to experience these things for myself to see the harm that came from them. I could learn from someone else's experience. And what is so wrong about that? What's wrong about this is that we're not being honest with ourselves. It's not that we believe that there's a greater education if we experience these things for ourselves. We're basically saying we just want to experience them. And this is what's getting so many in trouble today. And Jesus says it very clearly. They rather love their evil rather than turn to God. But God came down to save us from all of these things. One wrote, he says, it was clearly a leap down as if the Son of God rose from his splendor, stood poised on the rim of the universe, irradiating light and dove dove headlong, speeding through the stars over the Milky Way to the Earth's galaxy, where he plunged into a huddle of animals. Nothing could have been lower than that. God provided us a Savior. And our takeaway lesson from all of this today is this that God has shown us that nothing is too hard for him to accomplish. 
Nothing is impossible for him to accomplish. And now he is able to perform that which he has promised, and he is faithful to providing that in which he has promised to you and I. And this day I am reminded that God has provided himself a savior for me, a savior from sin, a savior from death, a savior from the darkness and brought into the light and given abundant life in and through him that I can't even explain to one who is not saved. I can't even explain to one who is not saved the abundance of life that God gives to those who are His. I can't explain the peace that surpasses all understanding. I can't explain the joy that is just overwhelming. I can't explain the, the, the clarity and the soberness of thinking through the lens of Scripture and seeing the world as God sees it. I can't explain the love that I have experienced in and of God to someone who has not experienced it. It's an impossibility. But not only has Jesus proven to me that he is his savior, from his death to his resurrection, he has also proven to me that he is Lord. God is in control of all things. Caesar Augustus could do whatever Caesar Augustus wanted to do and God's plan was going to be unfolded perfectly, wasn't it? In fact, we wouldn't even know who Caesar Augustus is today. But we know who Jesus is. We know who was born in that manger, in that place of humility and obscurity. If I were to ask you today, who is Caesar? You'd tell me he's the guy who made that great salad. We wouldn't remember these individuals if they had not been recorded by Luke for us. But we remember Jesus. God is still on the throne. He is still in control. He is still our Savior. And I leave you with this. For Jesus himself said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way for salvation.